Salutations, medical professionals and enthusiasts. Welcome to episode two of Odd Body, your medical podcast for all things weird, wild, and worth exploring. I'm Emily SJ, and today I'm talking about the syndrome known as pica. literally an entire TV series dedicated to marveling at individuals who compulsively eat inedible substances. But in the show, the disorder is presented as an addiction, and the science is totally missing. In true guilty pleasure form, the show offers no explanation. Pica, at its core, is an eating disorder, and it's defined by an intense hunger for non-food substances. Under the DSM-5, a diagnosis is determined by the presence of two factors. One, the patient repeatedly eats non-food substances for at least a month. And two, the behavior is developmentally inappropriate, socially abnormal, and unrelated to any sort of cultural practice. So this isn't your run-of-the-mill pregnancy craving or your toddler who grazes on play foam. Intellectually speaking and all disabilities aside, the individual understands the difference between edible and inedible, but the urge is present nonetheless. These substances in question have zero nutritional value, and they resemble something like a hobby store shopping list. Chalk, paint, dirt, clay, string, coal, metal, pebbles, and wool, even hair, gum, baby powder, ashes, or soap are just some of the common menu items. The DSM-5 also notes that when pica occurs in individuals with existing psychological disorders or pregnancy, medical attention is indicated. Although I would probably recommend all instances be checked out because pica is commonly secondary to an underlying medical condition. The word pica was coined in the 16th century, and it's derived from the Latin term pica pica, which means magpie. Fittingly, this species of bird is notorious for gathering non-food substances. Unrelated, apparently magpies are known for aggressively swooping at people's heads, which is quite upsetting. I encourage everyone to research this horrifying topic. But back to pica. The earliest known cases were reported as far back as 400 BC, and pica has long been a practice in various cultures where inedible substances are consumed for either medicinal or religious reasons. For example, the consumption of clay is used to promote fertility in certain regions of the world. And today, clay and dirt can be found pre-packaged at your local flea market in some southern states, carrying on a practice passed on from several generations of earth eaters. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, pica was actually described as a common practice among slaves in the West Indies, Africa, and the Americas. There was little to explain the behavior, but landowners were less concerned for the well-being of the slaves than they were for the integrity of their property, which was being consumed on a daily basis. As an appalling solution to the issue, landowners would actually make their slaves wear bridles, a form of headgear, to discourage the behavior. Pica is an overarching term to describe this phenomenon, but some forms of pica carry their own terms based on the substance being consumed. Some of them are more common, and some of them are downright disturbing. To name a few, lithophagia refers to ingesting pebbles or rocks. Pica for clay or soil is called geophagia. Coprophagia is the consumption of feces, and there's trichophagia, which is eating one's own hair. 
Now, many forms of pica can cause a substance to accumulate to form a mass in the stomach or intestines, creating what's called a bezoar. But perhaps the most unnerving of these are trichobezoars. And I'm genuinely sorry for the nightmares, but yes, these are massive hairballs. They can cause GI obstruction and they may require surgical removal. Moving on to mucophagia, which is the most perplexing of them all, is ingesting the mucus of invertebrates. I'm not even sure how you get your hands on that, but it's a thing. And pagophagia, which is the compulsive ingestion of ice. This particular form is super common in patients with iron deficiency anemia, but interestingly enough, it's been proven that iron treatments are even effective in patients who have pagophagia who aren't anemic. While I was researching pica, I found myself wanting to understand the who and the why. And what I found were mostly theories for the why, and specific groups of individuals for the who. Iron deficiency anemia has largely been considered to be the leading risk factor. In a study with 55 patients who developed iron deficiency anemia secondary to GI blood loss, pica was present in 58% of the patients, and in 90% of this group, their pica manifested as pagophagia, and there are tons of studies to back this theory up. When we think of anemia, we imagine a pale, fatigued patient who's maybe unfocused or sluggish or unable to concentrate. Research claims that the act of eating ice can actually cause vasoconstriction, and vasoconstriction increases blood flow to vital organs like the brain, kind of like a sympathetic nervous response. As a result, the individual feels more attentive, they're more focused, and they're less fatigued. It's kind of crazy, but the physiology really does make sense. In one interesting study, iron-deficient anemics and non-anemics were randomly given either tepid water to drink or ice to chew, and then they were all given neuropsychological tests. Ice had zero effect on the performance of the healthy subjects, but it drastically improved the performance of anemics. When the performance of anemics versus the healthy subjects were compared in the tepid water study, it was found that the anemics performed substantially worse than the healthy patients. Another theory is that ice relieves that hallmark swollen red tongue that can sometimes happen with anemia. No matter the benefit, the anemic patient's craving for ice is intense, and it has its benefits. Pica is most commonly seen in children and in pregnant women. Deficiencies in thiamine, vitamin C, iron, zinc, and calcium, coupled with low hemoglobin and hematocrit during pregnancy, have all been linked to the diagnosis, and the compulsion may actually be for items that contain the missing nutrients. It's almost like our bodies are subconsciously compelling us to correct imbalances that they can't handle on their own. It's estimated that anywhere between 20 and 52% of pregnant women develop anemia during pregnancy, which may be a reason why pica is more common than we're led to believe. But pregnancy can also involve stress and trauma, which are things that can trigger pica. As I mentioned, pica is super common in kids. 25 to 33% of all pica cases include toddlers and preschoolers, affecting males and females equally, which may be attributed to the high rates of iron deficiency anemia seen in this population. Strangely, pica can also exacerbate iron deficiency by reducing iron absorption because clay and dirt contain elements that can bind to iron, further diminishing its overall concentration. 
Pica may also be psychologically triggered in adolescents who are emotionally disturbed, neglected, or who have difficult home situations. With psychological origins, pica may offer a relief from anxiety, which can become ritualistic and, unfortunately, may ultimately lead to some addictive behaviors later in life. I found that in terms of mental health risk factors, individuals with schizophrenia and OCD carry a high risk for developing pica. In one case, a woman presented to the ER with diffuse abdominal pain and psychosis. Upon further assessment and imaging, it was found that this patient had lost a sibling in the last year and had been ingesting large amounts of pebbles. The patient was treated for intestinal obstruction and later diagnosed with schizophrenia. It's cases like this that have led to the correlation between mental disorders and pica, and in this particular case, the fact that the patient had a history of pica and new emotional trauma created an ideal setting for pica. If you're interested in this case study, you can check out the article on oddbodypodcast.com to learn more. Research shows that special needs populations have high rates of pica, ranging anywhere from 6 to 26% of individuals with intellectual disabilities. These disabilities include things like delays in speech, motor function, and problem-solving skills. Even more common is the link between pica and autism. Between 46 and 89% of children with autism exhibit signs of pica, and it's thought that it may be something like a sensory impulse. The individual enjoys the smell, texture, or taste of the substance. Or the behavior may be caused by low self-esteem or used as a way to gain control. Iron deficiency isn't always a factor in these populations, but it can certainly add to the behavior if it's present. In a study with 11 children who were diagnosed with pica, 10 of them were previously diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, and 8 of these 10 also had iron deficiencies. The outlier, a 3-year-old female, was also anemic and had a speech delay. The good news is that the study found that pica behaviors were heavily reduced among these subjects using just therapy and different types of reinforcement. Race wasn't a huge theme in the research, but pica is more common in African Americans than in other ethnicities. But overall, pathological pica isn't limited to any particular region or race. However, a history of pica as a cultural practice or pica behaviors as a child can definitely predispose an individual. Research shows that socioeconomic factors can influence pica, especially due to an iron-deficient diet. Iron deficiency anemia is not only the most common nutritional deficiency in the world, but it's extremely prevalent in developing countries and lower-income populations. According to the WHO, the prevalence of anemia in developing countries is roughly 51%, whereas in developed countries, it's just 14%. A few studies link pica to chronic kidney disease, specifically to patients on dialysis. These studies found that an associated deficiency in erythropoietin and an alteration in iron absorption can cause nutrient deficiencies and electrolyte imbalances, and ultimately a risk for developing pica. In fact, anywhere between 10 to 46 percent of the subjects across these studies exhibited symptoms of pica. There were a couple other half-baked theories that included genetic disorders, one like Prader-Willi syndrome, which is a disorder characterized by hyperphagia. Basically, the patient is insatiably hungry, which can lead to pica, and other neurobio issues that include dopamine, serotonin, and opiates. 
but the literature was just too meager to form any sort of correlation. I also had a hard time finding theories that explain ingesting some of the more shocking, uncommon items like feces, urine, or glass, but I'm guessing it's because these might have fewer physiologic triggers, or they may just be isolated cases related to psychological illnesses. The research was inconclusive. Now, pica isn't always lethal or dangerous, but when certain substances are ingested, we're looking at some potentially destructive consequences. Your teeth might fall out, there's a risk for choking, a risk for infection if contaminated substances or feces are involved, and a risk for toxicity. Poisoning is especially a risk if the patient indulges in earth-based substances or paint chips, which I've read have a dangerously sweet flavor, because lead is a common component of soil and clay, and also paint from before the 1980s. As you can imagine, pica can devastate the GI system. A patient may present with nausea, vomiting, fatigue, bloating, bloody or mucoid stools, and imaging may show intestinal obstruction or perforation or a tear in the mucosa of the stomach. I'm just going to go ahead and professionally recommend that no one eat glass, no matter how tenacious or seductive the craving might be. Lead isn't a factor in every case involving pica, but given that pregnant women with pica tend towards substances that contain lead, it's worth mentioning here that lead can cross the placental barrier with extreme ease. Lead poisoning or even increased levels can cause gestational hypertension, spontaneous abortion, premature birth, low birth weight, and impaired neurological development in infancy and childhood. In fact, most states require lead exposure to be assessed during pregnancy and annually among children between the ages of six months and six years. But lead levels should be measured if there are any risk factors for lead exposure or any symptoms of pica. Pica can be a difficult thing to diagnose because this compulsion may be accompanied by shame, embarrassment, or denial, or a reluctancy to admit to healthcare providers that it's happening. A stigma indeed exists, and don't even get me started on social isolation, but pica was linked to pregnancy back in 1542. No matter how pervasive pica in pregnancy may be, feelings of guilt and a lack of education are causing cases to be underreported. Sources recommend a greater effort among healthcare workers to educate patients about pica and to bring this potential consequence of pregnancy to the mainstream. So how do we treat pica? Well, it depends on the substance and amount being consumed, plus a patient's lab values and underlying medical conditions. But some treatments include dietary supplements, surgical extraction of the substance, enemas, blood transfusions, behavioral therapy especially, and resource allocation for those with socioeconomic disadvantages. Stool softeners, painkillers, and antipsychotics were also prescribed in some cases. And of course, chelation therapy for lead poisoning, which involves the use of chemical compounds that bind to metals. Pica, at its best, is a somewhat effective compensatory mechanism telling our bodies we're missing iron, and at its worst, a disorder that can destroy your organs. But we have to look at individual risk factors, diet, be culturally mindful, and educate patients to lend the appropriate care. The fact that there are TV shows that encourage the stigma isn't helping. After all, 
anemia, kidney failure, poverty, and mental disabilities are matters that require professional attention, not a camera crew. You can follow me on Instagram at oddbodypodcast and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To see photos, case studies, and resources used for this episode, visit oddbodypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, littering is for cowards.